Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. It's episode 200, Sherry. Wow. 200. Can you believe it? It's hard to believe. I can't believe it. I can't believe you sat across from me. I know you haven't been in all of them, but for nearly 200 times and put up with me. Pretty hard to believe. I know. I can't believe I, I don't know. I was thinking maybe it was like 100, but. No, here we are. And we always try to do something big, have a special guest for the milestone episodes. And this is no exception. We have the specialist of special guests, someone that I've wanted to have on the podcast for quite a while. And someone who is just as near and dear to you and I as is humanly possible. And I have to admit that I'm nervous about this episode. Not, not in the same way that I was nervous. Like, like we've had some, some people on like, like Dr. Rob. Yes. When we had Dr. Rob on and did the, who wrote the book pro dependence that a lot of our listeners are big fans of. I was nervous from the moment we like, welcomed him onto the really Zoom room. Really professional and oh yeah, well he's like we're admirers of them, and so yeah. that's very unnerving. And well, Doctor Rob's just kind of intimidating, at least to me. And then, like I think of Abby Metcalf, she was like put together and ready to go right out the shoot. I think possibly highly caffeinated. I'm not sure, but uh, I remember I was like, whoa, I'm gonna have to kick it in another year to keep up with her. So we've had some really impressive guests, but no one is as impressive as our daughter, Catherine, who is joining us today. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for that excellent intro. I feel so special and welcomed. Well, you are special. You are so special. And I am very nervous, and I know you're nervous too. But, you know, I'm nervous. I'm not nervous because... Uh, I'm worried about something that you're going to say, Catherine. I, I mean, it's really important to us that you feel comfortable saying whatever is in your heart, whatever's on your mind, whatever level of vulnerability you're willing to express here. Nothing you say can hurt either of us. So that's not why I'm nervous. I think, and I want to hear what you say, they say, Sherry, I'm nervous in the way that a parent is always nervous when they watch their child do something hard. So I know that what we've asked you to do and what you have agreed to do here is not easy. And it's a big step. And it's a it's something that a lot of people don't have the strength to do. And so I I'm nervous about that. Do you think that's why you're nervous? Um, well, I'm just like you said, nervous for, you know, something that could be hard and emotional and painful, um, no matter how important it is. It's still hard to watch you know, someone have to relive some uncomfortable moments of their life. Um, I, uh, I'm going to try really hard not to be overly emotional from the gate that I already have been a little bit. Um, you know, just, just cause I, you know, I know some of the stories that we haven't shared on the podcast. Um, and, uh, and I'm just, you know, I just uh, worry about the, I don't know, emotions. Well, our listeners know this is a safe emotion zone. I think one of the reasons that 
people are attracted to this podcast is because how you are feel safe to express your emotions and do so mm-hmm. whenever they come to the surface. And so Catherine, we want to, you know, welcome you to feel safe with your emotions as well. We're not going to do a listener question on this episode. I thought about it. Uh, lots of people do ask about communication with our kids. So it wouldn't have been hard to find a listener question that fit, but you know, I thought about the par- the power dynamic of a child and her parents, and you've spent your whole life listening to us and listening to what we have to say. And I don't want to make this episode, I don't want to make you sit here and listen to us any more than you already have for the first however minutes we've been recording now. Uh, I want this to be about you. There's something sacred about making this your story, Catherine. And so we'll do a listener question on the next episode. So how about I hit you with a question? You ready for that? I'm ready. Let me have okay, it. Great. So let's, you know, go chronological. We don't always do that, but let's do that in this particular case. What are your kind of earliest memories of how alcohol was impacting your childhood? And I'm guessing that your your memories of traumatic situations or anxious situations probably predates your recognition that it was had anything to do with alcohol. In other words, you, you, you probably were stressed or not feeling good and you, or you didn't like the vibe you were getting from me or mom or both of us and didn't realize it was alcohol. Is, is that fair? like you were having a tough time before you were keenly aware it was alcohol, right? Yeah, I, I can agree to that. I, can you t- talk about what kind of some of those kind of early memories of, and I imagine too, you probably, it's the only childhood you knew. So you probably didn't even know there's anything wrong for a while, right? Yeah, I think that's something that I'm still kind of working through on my own is figuring out the things that were normal to use that word. Like, uh, I don't feel like anyone's necessarily normal, but trying to decipher what feelings and emotions I was having because of alcohol presence in my life versus just like growing up. Um, and I think a lot of the emotions I remember really early on were just like disliking being home. And that was kind of the big thing. And one of the reasons why it was hard to recognize that I was um, not in a like safe environment. Um, I was safe, but it wasn't always emotionally safe. Um, like I would dread going home. And I mean, I had friends that would talk about, you know, when we were hanging out, they wouldn't want to leave. Or if I was at school or like at sports or something, and I'd be having a good time, like I could find a couple other people in the group that say, oh yeah, I don't want to go home either. But when I said, I don't want to go home, like I would have rather just kept walking all night than go home. Like I, there were times when I knew that going home was going to be like, um, kind of like a very uh, emotionally intense time without being able to identify why. Um, and I wasn't, like I wasn't texting with you guys until sixth grade when I had my flip phone for the bus. But um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes when like um, I'd get a text from mom in a certain tone, um, 
I could tell that like something was off at home or like, um, but most of the time it was like when I walked in the door, that's when I knew what the vibe of my home environment was. And only then once I've assessed the vibe, could I relax? And so like my journey um, from wherever I was back to home was always an anxious one. Um, it, talking to everybody in my house for the first time since getting back, that's always an anxious one. Like I made a habit to go into every room and say hi to everybody when I got back. Um, and I think that's just something we do as a family because it's communal, but I also, it was also a very good tool to know who is feeling what, and if I can bother this person, if I can't bother this person, um, what rooms are safe, what, what activities are happening in the house. I just felt so on edge coming back home. And I, I don't think a lot of kids feel that way. That's really interesting in two ways to me. First of all, I remember you always being really good about greeting everyone when you would come home. And I just thought that's because she's just the best kid there is. She's just above and beyond. She's friendlier than most. And to hear that that was a way to test the water. Yeah. An assessment. I mean, it makes perfect sense. I totally understand what you're saying. Um, it just, it's, it's really interesting to hear that's what was going on. And then the other piece that's so interesting, I can't tell you, Catherine, as we meet people who are dealing with alcoholism on, you know, either side of it as the drinker or as loved ones of the drinkers. Well, no, I shouldn't say as the drinker, only as the loved one is of the drinker. We hear so many people talk about that, taking the mood, taking the temperature, when either they first get home or when that, when they're already home and the drinker first gets home, we've had people talk about how they can tell from the footfalls of the drinker, from the way they're walking, whether it's going to be a good night or a bad night. And so that taking the temperature, it's so interesting to me how that's universal, whether it's the child or the, the child spouse. or the spouse. Yeah. Or the parent, if it's the adult, you know, an adult or teenage child that's has the alcohol issue. And why that's so important. A lot of people who will listen to this episode, Catherine, think like I do. They think that they are protecting their children and they're hiding them from it. And like when mom and I would argue, we would whisper fight late into the night and we would, we would try not to do it in front of you kids. And I was under the absolutely incorrect belief for so long that we had done a good job protecting you guys from it. That's one area where mom and I, Sherry and I just diverged completely. She totally knew. Well, and it wasn't always whispers, you know? Yeah. So sadly, that's also part of it because we would try. But but, but so many people will listen to this and they're going to think we're doing our best to protect our kids from it. And to hear you say that from a young age, you would have to walk in and take the temperature. And so it wasn't, I mean, but let's talk a little bit more about that. It wasn't always screaming and yelling when you would walk in the door it was like a tension and anxiety level right is is that how would you describe it oh 100 percent. like um mom has no poker face so if she was sad it was obvious or like if she was mad it was obvious and my job was to figure out who she was mad at like it was did one of my brothers just piss her off for a second or was there an argument earlier um so mom was usually the first person that I saw because she was sometimes in the kitchen um, or downstairs by my room. Um, I'm so sorry, I lost track of the question. 
No, just the, it wasn't when you talk about the fear of coming home, it wasn't screaming and yelling and dishes oh, yeah. flying. And it was an anxiety level that you were trying to gauge. Definitely. Like were my brothers sitting in the living room or were they sitting in their room? You know, was the communal space being used in a loud, joyous way, in a way that means that the house is inviting and happy right now? Or is everyone kind of staying in their corners of the house until it'll be dinner? And that's the next big collision. Um, And I don't think that's like a something that can be identified with like one or two characteristics like that's just it's a a vibe for lack of better words you know an energy in the house it's like a cloud one of the things that mom and a lot of the spouses of alcoholics talk a lot about is after having gone through this all they're looking for is peace and consistency do you find that in your life now as a young adult, that you have a strong desire for peace and consistency after that coming home and never knowing what you were going to find. Yeah. And if you don't, that's fine too. You don't, <laughs> you don't have to just, you know, give me the answer you think I'm, I'm digging for. Well, I don't necessarily crave chaos and movement, but peace and <laughs> consistency is nice. Um, I think more than that though, it makes inconsistent things a lot tougher than they need to be. And I'm thinking specifically of when I had to move my sophomore year, Um, like that was, um, I handled it well, but I like didn't sleep well and I didn't, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And it was just kind of, it was a lot more frustrating for me that I had to move than I feel like it really, like, I mean, the circumstances were off for sure, but like, it felt like I had just found, like I had just gotten settled in, you know, and I just had my space arranged the way I wanted it to. And then I had to be in between places for the next six months and um, moving here, I definitely noticed, like the apartment I'm in now, uh, I definitely noticed um, how, how much my like heart rate just from day to day dropped like stress levels were down and I'm sure that would have applied to anybody but peace and consistency always feels great and one of my um best examples of peace and consistency um in in our house was um after you stopped drinking dad and um y'all would have your talks on the porch and then those talks on the porch got shorter, less crying, so they turned into walks, and then the walks got less frequent. Um, your conversations behind closed doors weren't scary or anything. They were just like boring tax stuff. Like that, that was peace and consistency <laughs> for me. You know, like when I wasn't worried did it about- make, Did it make you nervous when we would go in a room and close the door? When you Why first started- when you first started doing the um, shout sobriety and echoes of recovery videos, seeing the doors closed was kind of scary. <laughs> I did not, I don't, I don't like it. Cause I, I, um, I mean, like, I, I, it doesn't matter if I know that it's just mom changing in there, but when that door's closed and you're both in there, doesn't really remind me of fun times. 
Mm-hmm. So. Well, that that's what I mean. So the w- when you think back to when the door would be closed pre me quitting drinking back, you know, when you were younger, that was always a bad sign when you'd see the doors closed, a doors cl- uh, behind a door closed. Yes, because I wouldn't say it's worse than the door open because there were definitely times where I wish you all were just in a room. But um, if there was nothing to talk about, that was peace. If there was no conversation yeah. in hushed whispers or whatever, that was peace. Everything else was the the chaos. Um, well, when you mentioned the talks on the porch um, when dad was drinking, we've talked about that on the podcast. Um, and we've always, and in our groups, we always highly recommend that couples have a weekly meeting, a weekly talk. But when we started doing those, and I've often said that they would just be so long and drawn out and every which way, like if there had been an argument before, like dad would try to fix everything else in our lives than the alcohol. And I, I remember I would get so worried and it would upset me so much because we would try to do it at lunchtime on Sundays. And I thought, you know, how long can these kids sit at the table and eat? I mean, I know eventually you guys were able to get up and take care of your own selves, but I just thought this is just awful because they could be so long and drawn out. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because as a parent, I was sitting there thinking, this is ridiculous. They know something is going on and I don't see how you couldn't understand. Well, I, I mean, you guys did a great job of playing it off. I would, we'd look through the window and you'd be talking and you'd seem like you were laughing and I was oblivious. There were a lot of times where I really just didn't think this was impacting you guys. I wasn't, wasn't picking up on it. And, uh, that's definitely in a long list of regrets. Um, you mentioned the flip phone and it made me think, so, uh, the first phone that each of our kids had was pretty low budget. Like for instance, I got a new phone and Catherine got my old flip phone. That's how you started out with the flip phone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, weren't you the one, didn't you leave it at the, that was at mine. the elementary school? First, we started out with the fancy slide keyboard. Oh, yeah, that yeah, was you're slide right. Phone too. You're right. Yeah, and then that's that's the <laughs> one I left in the rain. <laughs> but so you <laughs> left it like on a bench at the school in the rain or something, right? Yes, and it lived. So, but uh, one of the characteristics of someone who is an alcoholic is that they are super short tempered and not fun to deliver bad news to whether they've been drinking or not. Temporary sobriety between uh, bouts of drinking does not make for even temperament and calm and peaceful communication. So when that, like, I just thought of that as an example, is that an example of a time when you were pretty, I don't know, terrified about telling me about, leaving your phone in the rain. How can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I'm tearing up a little thinking about it. Um, telling either of you that I had done something wrong was like the hardest thing I could do. Um, 
I try not to make mistakes, or at least I tried to always fix my mistakes without needing help because um, even if I like went to mom first, you would find out and then it would be a whole thing. Um, and like, I didn't get grounded growing up, but I, I would have rather it just be like a short, you're grounded conversation than all the lectures and um, belittlement and screaming that would happen. Um, I remember like leaving the phone there and um, like from the time I realized it was gone to when I decided to ask for help, I was making a speech in my head about how like, I'm so sorry, like this is all of the things I'll do to like make up for it. Um, if it's broken, I'll pay for it. Like I'll do this, that and the other, whatever. Um, I was trying to think of ways that it might not, that I could play it off as not my fault. I was trying to think of ways that um, like maybe someone had taken it inside. I was just already trying to look for ways to like make the situation um, calmer and more manageable when all I had done was leave my phone at the like school five blocks from the from us like it was not it was it wasn't a fancy phone it wasn't the middle of the day like it was after school and it was just until like the next morning or something um, I don't know if you can hear that but my roommate is deciding to nail something to her wall right now ah um, communal living it's okay yes I, um, but uh, I'm just going to jump in and say, and this was, was this your, because you, our family rule was you couldn't get a phone until you were in sixth grade because you had to go to the elementary school that was five blocks from our house, catch a bus to go, you know, the 12 or 13 blocks away to, so, the, middle school. to the middle school. So that's why in sixth grade, we got a phone. So was it sixth grade or seventh grade? That that the first phone that was my hand-me-down phone with the slide keyboard was the one that was left after school. So seventh grade. here you are, here you are, as, yes, a seventh grader trying to manage and figure out ways to make all of it better and try to think of the best case scenario and how you could make up for it because you didn't know what the, you know, what the reaction was going to be from either of us really. Well, I think if you had a negative reaction, Sherry, it was like, I know you would try to intermediary things. I mean, I don't think you were legitimately like organically upset about things like that. You would just try to show enough anger toward one of the kids so that hoping that I wouldn't, that I would just let you take care of it. That kind of a thing. Does that make sense? Like if you just said, oh, it's no big deal. Catherine, who cares? you knew I would come unglued. But if you tried to, to reprimand enough, you would hope that it was enough reprimanding so that I would stay out of it. I suppose that I've done that in the past. Um, I guess probably I hadn't really consciously thought of that. I'm sure that I have. I mean, like it, also, I it's a protection yeah, thing. Yeah. A protection thing. And also I would try to buffer. Yeah. You know, like, and um, so that wasn't a one-off. That wasn't just because of the one time you left your phone. That was any time that you would, uh, you know, make, I mean, I have trouble at this point, even calling these mistakes. You were a young person growing up and 
finding your way in the world. And you, you had a lot of responsibility on you at times as a young person. And so things wouldn't go exactly as planned and you would feel a ton of stress and anxiety from having to come and talk to us about that. Yeah. Definitely. So as you were telling that story about how you were trying to figure out all the ways that you can manage this lost phone as a seventh grader um, or a phone that you left, you know, on a, a bench at a school. And you said, you know, maybe you could even say, make up a story about somebody taking it and whatever. That speaks volumes in a lot of ways because that that is one of the characteristics of adult children of alcoholics or children of alcoholics is that there are these lies that we get into a habit because I'm a child of an alcoholic. I didn't grow up so much in the house, but I grew up around it enough that I knew enough when it was important and I felt like I needed to lie so it didn't look so bad. So lying right there, that's that's why lying becomes so easy because you've had to hide or you have to try to figure out a story to get yourself out of trouble to save your ass. So when we are looking at, you know, um, um, I don't know, uh, characteristics well, that's, of adult children alcoholic, that's, that's where, these are the kind of things it stems from. That's something that you've noticed later in life, right? I remember you told me a story once about meeting some people when you were in college. I mean, you're still in college, but earlier in your college career, meeting some people and they asked you if you played tennis and you said, Oh yeah, I play tennis and you don't really play tennis. And, uh, you, you actually didn't even know why you said, yes, you play tennis, but you're saying, Sherry, you think that's kind of one of the, one of the things, right? Yeah. And, and it was one of those silly things like that. I learned that sometimes there would be lies just to fit in. And, and just to make the conversation go smoother. Do you feel like that happens sometimes? Yeah, I think I'm pretty good at lying because I figured out what to say. I don't, it took me a while to realize I was lying, to be real. I thought I was either just not telling you the truth, like omitting the truth, which I've learned to recognize as lying, or um, I would lie for things that I felt like like I would equate them as white lies. Like it didn't really change anything if you, well, it would have changed things if you knew the truth, but the lie was like for the betterment of our environment or um, our well-being. And I thought I was lying for your sake. Um, so I got pretty good at lying and then lying got fun and in the way of like, I don't have to tell anyone anything about me unless I want them to know that and as somebody who's I've who I felt like um I was being observed all of the time and I was not in a safe space to fully express myself um or my emotions in the way that I didn't need realize I needed to um lying was exciting because then I was like doing a naughty thing on purpose, but no one could catch me because it, it was a lie. Um, yeah. As long as I was good at it. I, I've, I have gotten out of the, it was a habit to start like that. That's where it was bad. And the story I told you about, that's when I, it was like habitual to just go along with things or 
create characters, I guess, for each person that I met. Um, and once I broke the habit, it was easier to start understanding where my lies were harmless fun or where they were keeping me at a distance from people, keeping myself at a distance from like my emotions and myself. Um, and it didn't let me be authentic in, in who I was and what I was feeling, which makes it hard to move through life as an individual. Um, mm -hmm. I had a pretty rough time last summer because I was, I realized that everything I do from now on, like it's been on me, but it, it really is on me and I can decide to like drop out of college and start an entirely new career if I want to, or I can move to a different country or I can do nothing with the rest of my life. And that was kind of hard because I had, everyone grows up with a lot of guidance. Not everyone grows up with a lot of guidance. People, you grow up under constraints from the government or your family or whatever. And when you become an adult, that's freeing. It means you can spread your wings and finally become the person that you wanted to be. But I didn't really know who I wanted to be or what I liked or what I actually wanted to be doing with my time. I just had been doing the things that I had access to and that were things that like you wanted me to do. Like, and I don't mean it in the like, I hate the things that I had to do, like darn so mad that I did those because I really do love like playing soccer and I loved getting to work at the bakery and stuff and these are all in uh, childcare like these are all things that I do I have learned that I like but they weren't like what I picked out they were what was needed to fill a role or helped with the family or whatever and last summer I just was kind of like I don't really know what I want to do why am I doing any of the things that I'm doing why am I studying teaching is it just because I've worked in childcare growing up like I don't even do a lot of art when I'm in my free time like am I just you know um and that disconnect with myself um I definitely start to have started to see as a um protection implement that I've created mm. for myself um I by like not totally letting myself like just express the things I wanted to express or whatever and instead understanding that I have three little brothers that should be a little bit protected or um I have a family to attend to or even I just have like an image in my community to uphold and I know that everyone feels that to an extent but it just felt so much more extreme because like home coming home wasn't wasn't like the home base it wasn't like where I could reset like home was yeah. the enemy home was what I was trying to get away from subconsciously yeah. I never ran away but like it the peace and what was the word peace and consistency contentment consistency yeah. yeah that wasn't something I knew to look for I guess yeah um so now that I have it it's weird and I don't know what to do with myself but 
it does offer a lot of time for reflection. It's really interesting. We've, we've been learning a lot about authenticity of late and how important it is to be connected to yourself more important than really connection with any other person or any other thing. And so the fact that you're aware of that and looking at that, I think is really, really interesting. I also think it's really interesting how detailed your um, relationship with lying is, you know, you don't just look at lying as a black or white. You've got your white lies. You've got your lies that make the situation better. You've got your lies of omission. Yeah. That's a situation that you've been put into by the way you grew up, by the childhood you were forced into. And it's, it's real. I mean, I think the way you have processed it is really impressive, but I also think it's really sad that you were forced to kind of come to all those conclusions. Um, Go ahead. I was just going to say, I thought you were saying something. It's like person to person. I, I didn't need to be lying all that I did, but it felt safer to me than any other alternative. So yeah, it, it wasn't like I was forced into it, but I, I didn't have any other support. You know, that was my, my like eight-year-old mind making a solution. So hope, yeah, I don't know. I know you've noticed that well you're you're the oldest and you mentioned three younger brothers i know that you've noticed that you we parent especially the younger two differently than you were parented and i want to mention here that the alcohol was the biggest factor it was the awful factor it's the most regrettable factor but i also didn't know what i was doing as a younger parent or a parent of you when you were young and I, I had this belief that it was my job to teach you right from wrong and keep you on the straight and narrow and help you make the best decisions. And it, it didn't, I didn't understand that the, the world's tough and the world's going to do all that. And my job as a parent more than anything else is to create a safe environment at home for you to feel like yourself. And so I just want to mention that because I think there's two things at play here. The alcohol is the big elephant in the room and the thing that we're, we talk about on this podcast, but there was also just a lack of just basic understanding of what the role of the parent is to, to love and um, create opportunities for free expression. And you had whatever the opposite of opportunities for the free expression are, that's what you had. You, you had rules to follow. You had no tolerance for error. You, your grade expectations were high. Your participation, you know, if you chose to do something, you knew we expected you to do it with everything you had. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's just a very stifling way to grow up. Had to feel that way, yeah? Yeah, it was, it's weird to like, have friends now that like will quit a job after two weeks because they like didn't like it and I'm like what you're not just gonna dive into it and say oh well this is my reality right now and do it until you have to you until you can move on like making choices that benefit them wild like I um I felt pushed and I don't think I could have 
accomplished a lot of the things that I am proud of myself for accomplishing without this, that um, environment of um, pushing yourself and pushing your um, commitment, your limits, your um, involvement, all of these things. So I, I don't feel like they're entirely bad, but it was such a dichotomy to be having all of these expectations and rules and um, things expressed to you or to me by the two people I did not like most in the world. Like they were, you guys, I wanted to make sure that you were happy and you thought I was happy, but I also did not like anything about what was happening to get us there, you know? Yeah. Um, I never, like I, I didn't, or consciously recognize how much I didn't like you two until I um, was much older and I now I do like you two a lot and um, it's interesting to think about trying to have a conversation with like my dad um, when I was younger versus what it is like now and Back then, I always expected to like walk away with either like another task to do or something having been reprimanded or just like an awkward conversation that neither of us really wanted to be in. Um, yeah, I just always felt like there was something else. And now we can just talk about whatever we want to talk about. Did, did you reach the point where you understood why mom's mood would be that way and there would be stress and anxiety did like we talked about how these feelings predated your understanding of alcohol but did did you ever reach a point where you're like oh that's the thing that makes him act this way that's why he is a tyrant that's why there's stress and anxiety in the house or that's why you're like up and down like maybe you're silly and funny at the beginning of the sunday night dinner but then by the end of it you're grouchy and yelling at everybody did you, did you start to have an awareness that alcohol was playing a part? I think I had my first awareness that alcohol was the problem the first time. Well, I would talk to mom when things were bad. Like after she, you all fight, would fight, I'd go find her and say, what happened? What are you guys talking about? And she would tell me for the most part, I don't know what she omitted or what she didn't, but I learned a lot and I learned that it was a lot of times it was because you were drunk. So I learned what the word drunk and sober meant a lot younger than I think a lot of my peers did. Um, And once I did make the connection, I don't, I cannot tell you how young it was. It was pretty young that I realized that like when you were drunk, it was bad. And when you were sober, it was good. Um, But that very black and white definition um, didn't let me see the nuances of like, when he wasn't drinking, that's why he's irritable. Or um, that's why sometimes when he drinks, he's funny. And sometimes he's really scary. Or why it was okay when mom drank, but not when dad drank or some like, I, I didn't totally understand. I just knew that alcohol is bad, but sober's good. But people drink when we're at parties. And that's yeah. when it's, and that's when it's okay. And, yeah. or like parties are at home. So I don't know. 
I don't know if that was like a connection that was as it's definitely like fleshed itself out since I, I see more of the connections now but when I was younger I could just I would see your eyes and I'd be like oh oh no it's bad now um or I could hear like you mentioned the footsteps like I could I could tell after I could tell you how many beers you had had honestly I could go and count them in the recycling bin and be like yep that was six and um, you're pointing up because your bedroom was in the basement so you would, or like if with, we were in the living room yeah but like I'm just watching your mannerisms. Um, this is obviously going to come out as radio, not TV. But oh, you're yeah. pointing up. So uh, when yeah. you would sit in your room, you would hear me walking across the floor above you, and that's what you mean when you would you'd listen to the or footsteps. to the refrigerator that was in the laundry room down the yeah. hallway from her bedroom. Yeah. To go yeah. Get into or if we, or if we were in the like living room downstairs while like the boys and I would watch a movie or something, I could tell by like if you were like if you're sitting in the living room and you'd walk downstairs to get another drink or something, I could tell if you and mom were talking or if you were just doing your own thing because you were a lot quieter and chiller when you came down. Um, it, you would always talk to us, but it wasn't, that didn't change. So I want to talk about what is, and I anticipate this will be hard, but I want to talk about what is one of the worst moments of my life for me. And I know was really awful for mom too. We were going on vacation and there were lots of times when going on vacation was bad. Getting ready to go on vacation was bad, but there was a time when we were getting ready to leave and we had to go to the airport and uh, mom and I had been up all night arguing and I had been drinking the whole time and I think maybe slept for an hour or something. And then, but we had an early flight. So we got in the car. I drove. I had no business driving whatsoever. That was awful, awful, awful. But we were arguing in the car. And I, you know, I talk about how we, we, we tried to whisper fight. We tried to protect you. This was one of the times when nobody was getting protected. We were yelling at each other in the car on the way to the airport. I actually jerked the car around and did a 180 degree turn and said, we're going home. We're not going. And then Three minutes later, jerked the car back around, same tire squealing move and headed back toward the airport. And I mean, it was just awful, awful, awful. Um, and I, I just want to hear a little bit. Do you remember the incident that I'm talking about? Yeah. Can you share a little from your perspective? Did you feel like, did you feel pressure to protect your brothers? Were you just terrified? What was going through your head? Um, I don't remember. I don't remember anything in my own perspective, like my own first perspective, beyond the time, the first time you turned the car around because we were in a drive-through and you went the wrong way. We weren't going through the drive-through. The drive-through was closed because it was five a.m. But you like used the the road in the drive-through the turnaround and we hit the curb like twice and um people were screaming I don't know I just thought we were gonna die I didn't think about anything else I was just like I hope he hits that tree and I hope we all die right now because this is awful and um I don't know I thought this is kind of dark but I thought about 
you or me dying a lot. Like if I died or like got hit by a bus or something that you would like finally shut up and stop stop doing what you guys were doing and just pay attention to something else that was really important and not stupid because I thought it was stupid I didn't um I thought about you dying dad because then the problem would be gone um I thought about all of us dying and leaving you alone but like I didn't want them to happen but I'd think about it and I wouldn't be sad that I was thinking about it, which makes me sad now. Um, so I don't know, that memory is just kind of one of many scary, scary blurs in my recollection of my youth that is evidence stockpiled as to why the dad I grew up with is the worst person in the world. Hmm. I don't know. I'm sorry. I don't have many more no, you're, thoughts about that. You're, you're fine. I'm so sorry. I'm. I know it's okay. It's I'm so sorry. I know. But, um, you know, I've thought a lot about, and and we've talked on the podcast, and I've written about the difference between suicidal ideation and just kind of wishing you were dead, wishing it was all over. And um, I didn't realize before now that you and I had that in common. I never tried to kill myself. I never you know, took any steps or planned it out or anything like that. But I had lots of moments where I just wished I was dead. And it's heartbreaking to know that you had some of those same thoughts, but not surprising. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I was just dealing with a lot of emotions that I was not sure how to deal with. And so I thought that was kind of the only, only way out, only solution. Cause I didn't see any other I just know I, I knew I yeah. needed to get out of that. And I, th I saw death as an avenue. Well, you're too young to have to have thoughts and feelings like that. So I'll never forgive myself for putting you in that position. But it's a lot to come back from. And it's remarkable what you've what you've done to come back from it. Um, I want to talk about once I did get sober, but kind of transitioning into that, there was probably a, well, not probably, there was a 10 year period from the first time I tried to get sober until the time that I made it, where I would have periods of sobriety and then periods of drinking. My relapses were always long but my periods of sobriety were long too. It wasn't like, like you never saw me go four months sober and then I would just drink one night and then I would be sober again. When I would decide to drink, I would make a conscious decision to drink. And toward the end of my active addiction, when I would have a period of sobriety and then I would start to drink again, Sherry mom would, 
make me come and tell you guys that I was going to start drinking again. And, you know, I always had a plan, right? I always had a, a new set of rules. Oh, I'm only going to drink beer. I'm going to, I'm only going to drink on the weekends. What was it like for you when I would come and knock on your door and sit on the edge of your bed and tell you that I decided I was going to start drinking again? Do you remember any of those? I remember those a lot. When you'd come in and tell me like, I feel like you told me a lot of things, not just when you would start drinking again, but when you'd come in and tell me like, I'm not going to drink for like, I'm done drinking. And sometimes it was like, I'm not going to drink for the next three months. And sometimes it was like, I'm just going to stop. Or sometimes it's like, I'm only going to drink at parties. Whenever you tell me your rules, I would get really hopeful and very excited and um, things would be better in the house for a couple of days. And I don't know. Every time you would knock on my door then, you know, months later or whatever and say, I'm going to start drinking again. It was not, it was never surprising, but because I learned to expect it every so often, but for a while it was very heartbreaking. And I've kind of pinpointed that pattern of the promise of sobriety and a happy household until um, only to be let down time and again. Um, I've kind of pinpointed that experience as like the reason that I, I don't trust others at their word. And um, I find it very hard to put my environment in anybody else's hands because I don't think anyone's really honest and I don't, I didn't, I don't know. Like, I did you, did you feel let down or did you consciously feel like, did you just use the word honest? And I think I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for that word choice. I think you're right. But did you feel like you were being lied to, or did you just feel like your dad was weak and he couldn't hold, hold on to the thing he said he was going to do? Both. I mean, I felt like you were lying to me by saying that you could, and then you were weak when you said you couldn't. And um, I felt like I was being lied to when you told me that like, it wasn't a problem where you had rules or you had it under control this time. And then it was weakness when you couldn't, but sometimes I did think you were just lying and you just wanted to drink again. And that it wasn't because you had these rules you were gonna follow. It's just because it sounded good and you were not wanting to, be sober anymore I don't know I just did not believe a word you said after a while and just took everything as like okay whatever do your thing I know it's not gonna last Oof. I was I also kind of assumed you would sometimes there was like one sobriety period where I thought you were getting drinks in the middle of the night um and that might have been like me hallucinating but I I could have sworn there were like a few weeks in a row where the fridge door would open at like three o'clock in the morning and I'd hear the little like pop can lid open and I'd be like what a loser can't even make it through one like one period I don't know I don't know if that actually happened I had a lot of bad dreams in that time period but yeah I don't I don't remember that specifically, but I'm certainly not in any position to deny anything. Um, so 
Um, wow. Uh, you did a really good job of, and, and I think this is going to go back to the, the whole lying thing. And I mean, you did an incredible job of maintaining a facade of respect and love for your mother and I, given how you were really feeling. Did you just feel like every moment you were home, you, you were fake? You just had to be fake. That was your only choice. No, I, mean, you, I, I, I never felt like you were mad at me. I never felt like you didn't respect me. I never felt like you thought, you know, what a loser. I get it. I think you're right. I was a loser, but that isn't the, that isn't the outward face you showed to the, to us, to me. Yeah. I, it wasn't all fake. Like I, do love you guys and I did love you guys I mean you were my parents and even though we had our problems like we still went Christmas tree hunting together and we still had family movie night and played board games and stuff like we were still a loving family and I I it's hard because I trusted you guys more than anyone but I also think you were the last people I've ever trusted that way um and I don't know if I'll ever trust anyone fully again. And like, mm. I don't know, maybe I will. Uh, it feels like a very profound statement to say at 21, <laughs> who knows? Um, I'm just struggling with it right now and that might be my age or whatever, but um, I didn't ever like verbalize until much older, like middle school, like, the words like I hate my parents like I never said that I learned what love and respect looked like from you guys and you modeled it in areas and I was able to model it back and I wanted to model it back and also if I didn't model it back I would have got my ass beat so there wasn't really an option to be honest I couldn't be a rebellious mean child who did not like her parents that was not I would not have been treated nicely I would not have gotten through it as smoothly as I was so yeah there was like an air of I've got to keep this image up and it was hard sometimes I was intentionally like pretending or lying or saying things because that's what you wanted to hear um and but I wouldn't say all the time but the situation made it so that you had I made it so that you had to be fake and the situation I also made it so that was your only choice i i get it i i get it um so when i first got sober like really sober i remember talking to each one of you kids and I, this is something that even before i ask this question i've, I've been embarrassed about this for quite a while but I remember explaining the disease concept of addiction and how neurotransmitters work and how it's all this brain chemistry stuff. And that was the stuff I was learning. That stuff was really important for me to learn in order for me to maintain sobriety because I, I, needed, I needed to understand what was going on and know that it wasn't just a moral failing. That was important for me. But I felt like it was important for me to teach you guys that. And so here I am just coming off of 25 years as a heavy drinker and certainly 10 years across the line into addiction and all these despicable behaviors that 
have caused all these problems for you in your young lifehood, young life, lifehood, I don't think is a thing. And here I am, sit down, let me explain to you what happened. Let me tell you. And this is when they Let were. me teach you. Let me, did that just, sorry, go ahead, Sherry. I was just going to ask, is this about when Catherine is a sophomore in high school? Um, I don't know. I'll do some math while she's answering. Okay. Uh, freshman. Freshman. There, that was quick. Okay. But did, did, were you like, who is this guy trying to tell me anything? I mean, that must have, you must have felt condescended to, even though you were young. Oh, yeah. I mean, I learned very early that I should just take everything that you say with a grain of salt. And I didn't, that was kind of the final nail in the coffin of like, I don't think he knows how to solve his problems. And he definitely doesn't know how to help me with mine. Um, and I don't know. I don't think that's true. But I just, I was like, how dare you try to tell me about neurotransmitters right now? Like, I don't care. I just, I didn't believe you were going to stay sober. Yeah. I didn't care about the brain. I just wanted concrete evidence. And I felt like you were just giving me another list of things to point out when it all goes down the drain. So I don't know. I didn't, it didn't, it wasn't like a significant conversation in my head because it was just like every other conversation that we had had. It didn't get its significance, significance until later. Yeah. I honestly don't even remember the conversation that you told me you were finally getting sober. I think, I think it was, I think, I know we've had a, a lot outside and I like the outside conversations because then I feel like all of the neighbors are listening to you too. So I don't feel like I'm crazy, but that was, I don't remember if that was outside or not. Yeah. I, I can imagine it would be. And I, I think this, played out too when you were the summer before you left for college. I remember I had this like panic attack and I decided that there were so many things that I never found the time to teach you that I needed to teach you so many pieces of wisdom that I needed in part to impart on you. And this is, this is another thing that ties into there's a negative alcoholism component, but there's also just a bad parenting component here. What I've learned since is my job as a parent is to create a safe and healthy relationship with you so that if you have questions about things, you might consider me to be one of the resources you'd go to to bounce ideas off of or to ask questions. So as opposed to trying to cram all this information down your throat that you're not going to be able to take all in all at once anyway, rather than do that, I should have just tried to create this safe and healthy relationships. So you'd come and ask me about stuff, but I was too stupid to know that. But on top of that, you had also had all these experiences where the things I would say to you don't come true. And I'm just a liar. And, you know, the information that I'm sharing isn't valuable. And so do you remember, I remember it was in your room and you were sitting on your bed and I wanted to tell you a bunch of stuff. And you just were having none of it. You you had no room for it in your uh, knowledge bank. 
and no room for it in your tolerance of my sharing things with you. And it went really bad, like certainly way worse than I expected. Do you both remember that? I don't remember what we were talking about, but I remember having a really big fight with you right before college. Do you remember that, Sherry? Mm -hmm. I do, vaguely. Um, I remember like just kind of the lead up to it all, like um, how you were just always trying to make everything a teachable and moment yeah. in life lesson. And I was like trying to drink from a fire hose. You were trying to make up for all the lost time. But I just, I, I think it's important because I can think of people in my life that I don't have a lot of respect for that sometimes are trying to tell me how I should live my life or how I should do something. Mm -hmm. And I think, shut up. You're the last person I would want advice about how to live my life on. And here you are getting ready to go to college and you went, what, four states away. So it wasn't like you were just going down the road. You were making a significant journey off to college. And um, I'm sure that's, that must have been part of what you were thinking. Shut up. I don't want to. I don't respect you enough to care what you have to say. Is that a, is that a way to summarize? That's very fair. And I thought, I guess I must've reached my boiling point at that. Cause I thought I was pretty good at just smiling and nodding when you were telling me things, but something must've sparked. Cause well, I, don't... I, I remember the, the first time you really let me have it you really yelled back at me. And I have a good therapist friend that I called right after that happened. And I, I said, Oh, things are, they're even worse than I thought. She yelled at me. She just screamed at me and, and tore me down. And my therapist friend said, Oh no, that's a, that's a really good sign. That's a sign that she trusts the environment enough that she can speak her mind now. And I bet for many, many years, she didn't trust the environment enough to speak her mind. And so that's a hard, we talk about all these parts and pieces of alcoholism that are counterintuitive and don't make any sense. And that was one of them, right? My daughter's screaming at me and I'm supposed to celebrate that. But you, you did, you know, right around that time when you first went to college, you started to, to get the strength to, um, and not the strength that, whatever that you felt safe enough or you felt, or you were old enough or courage. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but did you start to feel that shift where you could let me have it if you needed to? Definitely. And I definitely think it was because there was a safer environment at home, like 20, that was 2020. And so that was four years post sobriety, right? 2016. And, um, like until 2018, it was still pretty bad, but mm -hmm. um, like I definitely, oh, I remember part of that argument you brought up about how you brought up how bad our relationship was. And I wanted to rip my hair out because I was like, no shit, our relationship is bad. What <laughs> have you not been here? Like, um, I think there was a shift in where I realized that you didn't get how That's mad right. I, like how mad I was and you didn't That's get right. how badly 
you had like what what the situation was after that I was like oh okay I got it I if I don't tell him he's never gonna know so might as well tell him I also I was also moving across the country and so I felt pretty fine if I got kicked out which I knew I wouldn't I would never have but like if anything had happened I was like it's okay I'm moving and a month or a month and a half or something so yeah it it was a combination of safer home environment and also an option to or not an option but like a plan in the near future in which I'd have my own space yeah yeah so I I think that's really interesting that during that lead up to that you realize he has no idea yeah because that's where I always felt like he and I's conversations would just be shocking to me sometimes. Like when he first got sober and I, I, I think the conversation where we had all of you kids sit down and he wanted to tell you he was sorry about drinking. And that was a couple of years into sobriety and, you know, or, or, you know, he just had no idea, no idea the damage that had been done between the kids and me and him and people in the extended family and just the environment that was their upbringing. So it was always just shocking to me. And I felt like for so long, I needed to like kind of make it an okay place, like, you know, tiptoed around and walked on eggshells sometimes to say, you know, it very kindly, like, no, the kids understand because I can't stop crying the next day or I'm on edge or they're just watching a movie, movies over and over because I can't get my shit together to be a mom and you don't know what you're creating. And so I understand what you mean, Catherine, by finally you like get to this point because there is a safer environment and you just unload. And then it's like shocking they're oblivious it was infuriating I was so I was I was like how like I thought I I thought I felt crazy I was like there's no way that I am this mad and feel this way and it was hardly noticed by by him like there's no way that everything happened and I'm I'm the one that's being irrational right now for not having a good good relationship with my father like I felt like I was being gaslit into like like and I I don't know I I did want I do want a good relationship with you and that that conversation did spark my like um a little bit of my healing journey just in terms of like how I viewed you and my understanding of what actually happened it's it's helped me chill out a little bit more to be intentional about fostering a better relationship with you but I didn't really like that was not the pivotal moment where I was like oh okay I want a good relationship with him because I was just so I was like I'm never gonna be able to talk to this guy what I don't know yeah I mean it it all it all makes sense now it didn't then because I mean two things from my perspective one the compartmentalization the only way that a drinker can keep drinking even when they're creating these traumatic situations is to sober up after that bad situation, maybe say some sorries here and there, mostly, almost exclusively my sorries were to your mother and I just assumed you guys were okay. And 
than to move on and to put that away. That's buried. That happened. I said, I was sorry. We moved on. If I had kept that as part of my consciousness, kept that in the front of my memory bank, like you and mom were forced to do because you had just lived through this awful thing, I couldn't keep drinking. So by prioritizing alcohol so high, the only way I could keep that relationship going was to bury the bad things after they had happened. So that's the compartmentalization piece. But then the other thing is what we talked about earlier. You were forced. It wasn't your doing. It wasn't your choice. You were forced to show this respect for me so much so that, and and like you said, you got pretty good at lying. I had no idea how bad it was because you'd put that false face on and come out and act like everything was fine. And I was too stupid to know that it wasn't. That's not an excuse. I mean, it's, it's awful, but I, I just, I know that there's so many dads that, that did and do the exact same thing. Well, and think it's no big deal. Well, and I let's not blow things out of proportion. And I did not realize how much of that, what you know, she was presenting in the house was like not really what she wanted to be doing. Yeah, I didn't know I, what I, I didn't know what I wanted to be doing. I didn't have yeah. another. I just was doing what I was supposed to. Do. That's all I mean. Like I wasn't conscious about. Yeah. I'm putting on a facade. I was never conscious about that. It's all retrospect that I'm like, hmm. Mm-hmm. I was doing that because that's what you're supposed to, not because yeah. that's what like, I was feeling. Like with sports in school year round in high school. So mm-hmm. you could keep busy. And and even in middle school, you did sports often. So it was so you could keep busy and stay away. And yeah. You. Uh, Sherry, you brought up something a minute ago that I did want to touch on. I know we're going back chronologically a little bit, but we had that family meeting. I was a year plus sober. The reason we had the meeting was because it was really important to mom. And we had finally figured out that she wasn't going to be able to begin to build trust for me or to make progress until I had given you guys all a chance to speak your mind. And we were in the living room. And I think that's how I don't think I did a lot of preaching and explaining for that one. I think I just said, we want you to say what you want to say. We want it to be, want you to feel safe saying whatever you wanted. And you let me have it. Um, Your, your brother's certainly less. So Uh, your next, our next oldest child, your closest brother, he just sat and held your hand while you kind of let me have it. And I'm curious what, what, if any memories you have from that, do you, do you remember what I'm talking about? And I'm crying just cause I, I miss Nick. <laughs> I miss my brothers. It's so silly, but um, no, I don't remember that specific conversation. Yeah. I it's think it was silly. a few years. It was, I think it was further into sobriety. Cause I think the first year, of dad's sobriety we just kind of all held on like waiting for the other shoe to drop is he going to drink again is this going to be another time that you know he's not going to make it or he's going to just make it enough and then realize oh well these are the rules that i can go back to drinking and live by these rules so i think we just kind of i was disconnected from him um 
And we just didn't really do a lot of conversing or understanding. And then it was a couple years after that, that I realized that I needed to get help. And I thought it was important for all of you kids. And I wasn't going to move any further until I felt like y'all had a chance to say how drinking impacted you growing up. Um, so that was the first time I think that you really had your first, it was the first time you were really, I felt like you were really able to share and give us a little bit of insight to how angry and disappointed and upset you were for having to live like that. And I felt really good because not that I wanted to see you kids like experience pain, but the levels of, you know, the oldest, they had to see more. They had to experience more. I was telling you and telling the your next brother who's two years younger than you, I was telling him a little less about like when dad was drinking that it causes him to not think right. And there were fights. Sometimes he's really funny and then he can quickly get mad if we got too out of control and giggly at the table. So like trying to explain this to kids who were in late elementary and in middle school is sick. And it made me, makes me feel bad when I hear you, you know, say that. Like I didn't make any clarifications between the difference between drunk and sober other than it's just drunk is bad and sober is, you know, good. Him drinking beer is bad and him not drinking beer is good. Um, but I think that conversation made me feel really validated in the fact that there was a lot of family healing that needed to be done because I knew it was affecting you all. Yeah. You, and it affected you all in so many different ways. You might not remember it, Catherine, but you got through to me that day for the first time. That was the first time I gave your mom credit for the idea that, oh yeah, you're right. This is messed up. I thought it was not messed up. This is messed up. And so that's why um, when we get to know people and we're sharing our story, we talk about how important that kind of family meeting is and um, that, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know until you sit down and talk about it. And so we always encourage people to do that. Were you ever, were you ever mad at mom for not leaving me? I was mad that she didn't like leave you and take us with her. I wasn't mad that she tried, that never tried to like leave on her own. Um, oh, she would never have done that in a, know, in a yeah. million years. I don't think she ever would have. And I also don't think that you would have let her. I don't know. That sounds intense, but I don't know. I, I, I don't think you're wrong. I just didn't see that as a thing that would have happened. Um, but I also was never like mad at her for not trying to take us away because I also figured you would probably find us true when we, if we did that. Yeah. Um, I thought about where we would go a lot. Like um, we couldn't go to mom's place because um, that was too far away. Like, I don't know. I, I was never mad at, that we never tried to leave because... You mean mom's hometown? Yeah. When you say mom's place, yeah. Just yeah. clarifying. Like, we couldn't yeah. have 
I don't know. I didn't think escaping was really an option. Well, yeah. I'm going to just um, bring up, this was something that I do have a lot of blame for myself about. Um, there was a time that there was an argument and you were probably in later middle school. Um, and it was towards the end of your dad's drinking and um, this time and he was just, it was just a really, really bad fight. And I just wanted him to leave me alone. I did not want to talk to him. I did not want him to ask me any more questions. I did not want, I just wanted him to pass out. I just wanted him to stop. And I snuck out of the house and I was able to get the car out of the driveway. But the worst thing about that was I just wanted to drive and be left alone. Um, but one of the worst things about that night was he went and woke you up and put you on the phone to talk to me while I was driving when I told him that I was just driving to come back and let him calm down and hopefully he would just pass out and go to sleep and that we could just resume the conversation in the morning. Do you remember like... I remember you and I've talked about that a little bit. That was one of the worst nights for me because I only, I thought that your dad was such an asshole to do that to you and that what you must be thinking and how you must be so mad that I'm not in the house to protect you right now. I was, I don't know. I don't think you should take as much shame or blame or whatever you're feeling as you do for that. Um, thank you for bringing that up. Um, but I'm sad that you feel shame for that because I think I would have done the same thing. Um, I wasn't mad that you weren't like there to protect us. I was just mad that you like made another scenario. You made another situation. Um, but that was terrifying because it was 3 a.m. and dad just like, like ripped my door open because you know how it like catches. And so he like banged on it until it opened, didn't use the handle. And you were already on the phone or he was dialing the phone. And while you, I was like trying to figure it out he was just telling me that you had run away and you had gone to a hotel for the night and that you needed, you needed, he needed you back and um, that you were abandoning me. And I didn't think you were abandoning me even in that moment. I mean, we had all been hearing the fight all night. Um, but I was scared when I got on the phone and then you said, I don't know when I'll be home. Cause then I, I was like, oh my gosh, is she actually leaving? This is awesome. I mean, like not awesome, but I was like, good for her. This is really happening. But it was also just like very exactly what I would have imagined if you had like, it felt like when dad first came in that you had like declared your um, decision to divorce and you'd packed all of your belongings and you had left the house and dad was coming down to like, one final desperate plea, like I didn't realize you had literally just gone on a drive and you are allowed to drive your own car whenever you want. Um, 
because you have a license and it's your car and I don't know it felt a lot scarier until I realized what was happening and then I was just livid that I was up at 4 a.m and I had to go to school the next day and that I was crying now and you were so sad and dad was so mad and I was just like what is happening it's four o'clock in the morning to go to sleep I mean it was a it was a lot more terrifying in the in the moment and like I still think back but back on it and it's very scary and like slamming and opening doors and stuff and it's just not fun but in the moment I am surprised to say that I was pretty chill I wasn't I wasn't like but were you worried about having to stay like if I, I had left were you worried about having to live with your dad and your brothers um I wouldn't have stayed with dad and my brothers we would have left so no I wasn't really ever scared of that Mm -hmm. I wasn't really ever scared to be left alone with dad because I thought I was 500 pounds and could take down a bear with my bare hands if I wanted to um so I thought I would be fine well I I felt Sorry. It, in spite of that um, that night and the, the specific details of what happened that night, I can tell you with absolute confidence and certainty that that, that never would have been a scenario. Mom, mom never would have left you guys. She would have she would have died before she would have left you guys, like per, permanent. Like that was just not in the list of possible things worth considering. So I know that now let's, um, let's transition a little bit. I want to talk about, um, what, what we're doing now, the, the new thing that we are doing together. And before we get into the details, I want to know what, what has writing Done. You are a writer. You are going into your senior year in college. You are the editor of the school, the editor in chief, right? Is that the title? Yes. Editor in chief of the school newspaper after being the sports editor for the last few years, where you edited and also you've done a ton of writing for the paper. Uh, you're an education major, and there's a lot of writing involved in that as well. Uh, education as well as a studio arts major. Um, but what has writing like I know I know you wrote your college essay was about living with alcoholism. Has writing been something that you have used in a therapeutic way? Has it helped you to process stuff as time has gone by? Definitely. Um, writing started as like an emergency activity that I would do when I was having like a panic attack or a lot of emotions and I just physically could not listen to it in my head anymore. And I wanted it out on a page so I could dissect it or think about it or word it the way that I really wanted it to, to sound. Um, Because so much of your brain, like you really decide your own reality and your own perception and your own perspective. And so writing is a good way for me to focus that and say, and it, it helped quiet all the conflicting noises in my head and say, this is what I'm feeling right now. And whether or not that was grounded in a 
real life scenario or my perception of a scenario or whatever, um, I was always able to go back on it and recognize where I was, revisit the feelings with a more clear mind, clear conscious. Um, and then I could start processing. Alternatively, I would write while I was processing an event and that would help me find truths that I didn't quite, or like make connections I hadn't quite made yet. Um, there have been so many aha moments that I've had about journaling that I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't see that. But um, it has become less of an emergency practice and more of a regular processing practice um, because I, I just, I see so much clearer after, if I'm really struggling with an event, if I've written it down, it's so much easier to process. Yeah, that that's exactly how I feel about it. Um, getting it down on paper, um, just it makes it like real and it makes it understandable. It's funny when you're the one writing it, it, it doesn't seem like reading back what you've read, what you've written should have any impact on you at all. You're the one that wrote it. Those, those words came from your head, but they do. And they help to make things that are abstract into the concrete. So you are going to be leading a new group. Um, we have, as our listeners know, we have our Shout Sobriety group and our Echoes of Recovery group and our Marriage Evolution group for people working to recover the relationship. And the, the newest group that we uh, are, are just launching now is called The Developing Story. And yeah, yeah, it's pretty, that name took a little while. Yes, it did. Pretty, pretty happy with uh, how that came out. Uh, the developing name. story writing workshop. And this is all about, you know, our other programs have different components. There's an online curriculum. There's, um, there's discussion calls. This is very specific, at least as we launch it, as we plan for it to be today. It's, it's going to be quite a bit about writing. People will, and it's targeted toward teens. That's why it's called the developing story. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I guess I was assuming that that was obvious, uh, but of course it's not. So we have to actually say the things we're thinking. So the developing story, it's for teens and you're going to lead it. You'll, there'll be writing prompts for the teens that are participating. They'll get a chance to write while on a Zoom call with you and then read if they so choose nobody's forced to read but if they feel comfortable reading if they feel like it's a safe environment they'll get a chance to read what they've written and receive feedback from other people in the group as well as you and hopefully just make progress hopefully it's a it's a really healing process um are you excited about this Catherine? i am so excited i have not done a focused writing group in so long. And I'm very excited to have um, that regular, that part of my regular routine again. I, I also think it'll be really good for me because um, I'm sure I'll be doing the prompts as well. So I love a good processing moment. Well, that's, that's what I was hoping that you would say, because honestly, these other groups that mom and I moderate, I, I think I get more out of them. And I know you feel the same way, Sherry. I get more out of them than the participants do. So being on either side of, of you know, the microphone, so to speak, uh, is it, there's all kinds of opportunities for growth and healing. Do you have any ideas for prompts? I don't mean to put you on the spot, just so we can give the listeners kind of 
I mean, I've got some ideas. Do you have any ideas? Hmm. Good question. I've been trying to brainstorm some and one factor of, of the prompts that I want, some of the prompts I want to incorporate are, I don't want all of them to be stone cold journal entries where tell me about a time where this happened. What did that make you feel? I don't want to um, make make these teens sometimes relive something that might be tough. Um, and something I've found to be personally helpful and that um, I have friends in, in school that are in psychology and writing and they've found this helpful too. Um, but to use fiction as a processing um, tool. And so writing about an experience or an emotion, but in an abstract format, um, such as describing a feeling as what it would be if it was a landscape or um, telling a story with a character that isn't you, which helps you separate yourself from your own emotions. It can help, it can help you get out of your head. Um, I don't have any like concrete examples, but the environment and emotions one is a practice I use often in my own head, um, describing what my sadness would look like if it was like the rainforest, like what would the rainforest look like if it was as sad as I am? Um, I picture that a lot and sometimes verbalizing that helps other people understand or helps me understand how sad I really am in that moment. That's very creative. I like that. I also think it's important for people who might have a teenager that they might be considering exploring this with, that they know that this isn't going to be all rock bottom moments. This isn't all going to be, Hey, write about the time your dad jerked the car a 180, and then he jerked the car a 180 and you went on to the airport. It's not going to be all worst moment of your life things. Um, I think it's great that a great idea will be to have some prompts that are talking about what people's goals are, uh, areas where they find joy, because often allowing people to explore, like you said, you had kind of a dichotomy, right? You had some traumatic moments, some chaotic moments, you had uh, lots of anxiety, but you also had some, some good times too. And exploring that can, can be just as healing as diving into the deep hard stuff. And especially because we're dealing with, with, teenagers and 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 people whose story really is developing um giving them an outlet for not just the tough stuff but also the places where they find joy can help them perhaps find more joy in life and really just find their voice so i'm 100%. sure yeah I, I mean i think there's there's gonna as much work as has gone into um conceptualizing this program and what it's going to look like there'll be just as much work that goes into the prompts and, and we'll be learning as we go. Right. Catherine, you'll try something. Uh, maybe it works. Maybe uh, a tweak would make it better. And then we'll try again the next week. And so we'll just, we'll try to grow and learn together as we go. Does that make sense? Definitely. As for the ages, you know, we're saying teenagers, I think that's kind of, um, thank Kind of vague, yeah, but I think it's kind of intentionally vague because I don't think we know exactly what's coming at us yet. We recognize that a 13-year-old and a 19-year-old are 100 years apart in experiences. Which, how do we know that? Because we have a 13-year-old and a 19-year-old in our house right now. <laughs> so the idea that they would be comfortable on the same video call, and this will be done by Zoom like our other programs are, 
the idea that those two would be comfortable on the same video call or that their parents of the 13-year-old would be comfortable having the 13-year-old exposed to the things that the 19-year-old is dealing with. I think that is a bad assumption to make. So um, we're just going to kind of figure it out as we go along. We'll see what age groups are interested. There is potential, Catherine, for doing two different groups, right? An older teens and a younger teens group. Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, but so the best thing for folks to do, if you're listening to this and you have an interest in uh, participating in the developing story is to go to thedevelopingstory.org and uh, read all about it. Um, read about what we what we're doing, and at the bottom of that web page is a, a form where you can just express interest. You're not making any kind of commitment whatsoever when you express interest in that initial enrollment form. It just uh, gives us your contact information, and we can reach out and start down the road toward enrollment, which includes part of the enrollment process is a video call with Sherry or I and Catherine, so that the you know ideally one of the parents would be there, the teen would be there. We'd talk through what the expectations are, what the intent is, get all the questions answered. And so it's a slow, we call it an enrollment form, but enrollment is a slow moving process the way we do things. We wanna make sure that everybody is comfortable before we, um, you know, kind of bring somebody into the program, because all these programs that we run, we really think of these people as an extended family. And not only do we want to make sure that the new person is comfortable, we also want to make sure it's a good fit so that the people that we're already, we have involved in our extended family um, will benefit from exposure to that new person, basically. So, so don't feel like you're making some big long-term commitment if you express interest on the enrollment form. Are you fired up about this, Catherine? Is this uh, something, you know, you're going into your senior year? Is this uh, a good addition to the things that you're already doing, the many things? Yes, I would say so. I'm very excited about this um, intersection between um, addiction recovery and art in the writing form. Um, Mm. these are things that I've been interested in and dealing with my whole life and I am I, I love working with kids I'm an elementary major elementary education major and I'm always excited to work with kids that aren't elementary schoolers um because those are <laughs> I see them a lot um <laughs> and I grew up with three younger brothers so I think I don't know, I saw all of them as teenagers and I think they have interesting things to say, different perspectives and silly, silly word usage. You've been training for this role your whole life, exactly. dealing with people slightly younger than you. It's and up my alley. And the reason that you're doing this instead of Sherry or I doing this is I think there's a high degree of likelihood that kids in, in that age range will really relate to you. And I think there's a zero degree chance of likelihood that they will relate to mom and I now in our fifties. So um, you are the perfect person for this, for this role. And we're really excited to bring you on. So Catherine, excited. I can't tell you how thankful we are for you sharing your story. I mean, I think the biggest takeaway, uh, and maybe this is just from my side of the street, right? But I think 
hopefully this will get this episode will get in the ears of people who think that they really haven't caused any damage to their kids and that you know they all they act fine so they must be fine well they're acting fine because they're hiding it because that's the only thing they know how to do so i really i think uh your story is going to reach a lot of people and we're really thankful that you shared it with us thanks and for giving thank me the space to do it well we're thankful that the relationship's developing to the point where you're you're willing and trusting i know we tell you this a lot but i just want to reiterate it i'm sorry and we are so proud of you and we're not proud of you we, we talked about all your accomplishments we're not proud of you for all the things you're doing we're proud of you for who you are and thanks for being you before you go we hope you'll consider these three resources if you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.